Today's guest has an incredible story to tell about her path to becoming a farmer. Lisa Graham Knight's story begins like a lot of new farmer stories do. A kid in her 20s, high on idealism and extremely low on any actual farming experience, decides to apprentice on a veggie farm. But the veggie farm Lisa chose? It was in the Queen Charlotte Islands, which are clustered at the 53rd parallel, a 20-hour drive north of Vancouver and then a 7-hour ferry from Prince Rupert. During that apprenticeship, Lisa realized just how precarious her new community's food security was, so she did what any good farmer would do. She went back down south, learned animal husbandry, bought some cows, and went back to Haida Gwaii to start the region's only dairy. Recently, she told me all about her adventure. I'm Jordan Marr, and this is the Ruminant Podcast. The Ruminant is a website that wonders what good farming looks like. This week, I posted a short essay I wrote in response to a piece that California farmer Jacqueline Moyer wrote for Salon.com. Her piece is about how hard it is to make a living as a farmer. She's certainly right about that. But my essay asks whether part of the problem is that some of us are just bad at farming. I really hope you'll check it out. Okay, let's go. Hi folks. I'll keep the intro short this week and for the next few weeks actually. I'm going to be away at farming conferences, and so I'll be recording my intros ahead of time. I will repeat, however, my reminder that I'm looking for ways to incorporate your tips for other farmers into my podcasts. One way to do so is to leave a voicemail at 310-734-8426, or email me at editor at theruminant.ca and tell me about the idea you want to share. From there, we can set up a time to chat. That's all. Here's my interview with Lisa. And I'll talk to you at the end. So first off, Lisa, I'll just I'll just ask you this: like, do you come from any kind of farming background? No, no, I didn't. I grew up in Kelowna, and my mom was a doctor, and yeah, just went to school and hated it, and tried to find something else. Yeah. Uh, you went. Sorry, you went to you, you hated all school, or you hated... pretty much yeah. Oh, yeah, like, pretty... are you talking about your first? post-secondary or do you mean just like like everything I yeah doing I really did not apply myself at all in high school yeah to the frustration of many of my teachers like you mostly just got like you fist fights and stuff <laughs> in the smoke pit yeah um no I just very days. like I would never study like it would mm. be like the night before and I always got by right but it was just not interesting for me at all it wasn't, I didn't see the application for either where my life was going or yeah. I didn't stimulate whatever there was inside me to push myself to be self-disciplined. How old are you now? I'm 28. You're 28. Yeah. And I was just going to ask you, what was the first major work either of writing or, you know, film that on, on food and food security that influenced you? Or, or if not the first, just a really important one in those in the early yeah. early days. Yeah, I think, I think probably one of the most prominent ones for me was reading the Grapes of Wrath by John. Really? Yeah. Oh wow! I didn't expect you to say that, yeah. but I totally I get it. Yeah. Yeah, and I did that when I was uh, traveling around Peru, actually, and I was visiting these really poor people that were producing food in their back here like so many potatoes right and um yeah that was that was neat because I was also being able to observe the amazing agricultural technology that the Incas put in in previous 
civilizations before them. Mm-hmm. So I just got really interested in the design and kind of carving out the earth and terracing the hills. And I was reading this book, Grapes of Wrath, about the Industrial Revolution. I was like, huh, this is really interesting. Mm. So, yeah, and then um, I think that's what made me want to just get my hands dirty, too. Like, I wanted to be part of it. I didn't want to be an observer about it anymore. Okay, didn't want to be an observer. So, what was your first foray into moving from observer to kind of, I guess, actor within some sort of farming context. Yeah, that was definitely my um, apprenticeship at Mott Island Farms in Haida Gwaii. So, okay, so you you got set up to do an apprenticeship there. What what was the production of the farm at the time? Um, It was a market garden. So a two, two and a half acre market garden, which was very labor intensive. And they had some chickens too, which was really neat. Um, And some fruit trees and stuff. But they were really hoping to be um, off the grid. Well, they were off the grid Mm -hmm. in in a lot of ways. And they wanted to, um, especially the wife who ended up being my mentor throughout this apprenticeship. She was the main gardener farmer. And she was a big advocate for food security, especially being in a remote island up north. Um, so she really drove this two and a half acre market garden to support both the family and bring it to the farmer's market. But the farmer's market was not on the island. No, the farmer's market was in the, the bigger city, Queen Charlotte Village. So we, that on, might on, take a, on a larger point. island. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you was there, were there any other other properties or residents on this smaller mod island yeah there was just one and it was a fishing resort that oh, had okay. caretakers staying there year round but no not not any kind of big population on this on mod island no we we were really it right so yeah. then you would take you would take the ferry across to the main island it was their private boat they were responsible <laughs> for their own right. transportation their own ferry yeah, yeah. So like during the market season once a week, they'd be heading over by boat to... Yeah, it would be twice a week because it was both a CSA, which would be delivered on the Wednesdays, and then also the farmer's market on the Saturdays. Okay. Okay. So they had the market garden and uh, some fruit <laughs> and some chickens and stuff. But what, what about, what about, uh, what about like cows? Because I know at some point there's cows. Were <laughs> yeah. They there? yeah. I was responsible for the cows, really. Um... That was, so I finished my uh, vegetable apprenticeship and I just got really wrapped up on being a part of this local food security, which was really obvious when you're there because everything comes in in the ferries. What's produced there was very minimal, but there was this growing urge and support in the community to to foster these these gardens and to have um, local meats and I was like, oh, this dairy thing seems seems pretty neat. So at that point, I wasn't vegetarian or vegan anymore, right? Mm-hmm. I was living in a in a place where it didn't really make sense to to be like that. Yeah. We were catching fresh salmon. We were foraging um, for yeah all sorts of stuff, hunting deer, mm-hmm. um, shellfish. You know, like it it didn't make sense. So um, in the context of Haida Gwaii. Mm-hmm. Things that that make sense there and are really um, emphasized there, 
are maybe a little more, uh, how do I say it? A little more like unclear in mm-hmm. the mainland. So it was very extreme in that way. It was like, I guess, and I guess, I mean, what a cool place to be exploring just, you know, these notions of food security, because I guess it takes on a much bigger or greater urgency in a place like that, where, I mean, most of the food is being coming from the mainland and you're dependent on a ferry that travels through some pretty rough waters in the winter and that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And so lots of times the ferry would just be canceled and the grocery store shelves would be empty and there'd be like no milk, for example. And uh, this was this was also the time when the regulations for um, slaughtering your own meat was being really clamped down on. So we didn't have a local abattoir at the time. Even the meat, there was uh, a ranch there, so beef had to be shipped off to the mainland. Yeah, I remember this. This was in 2006. British Columbia's slaughter regulations changed in what many in the small-scale farming community deemed to be a really, really terrible way. Yeah. And I, I remember there were there were some some ranches up in the Queen Charlotte's that were shipping yeah. their cattle a few hours by ferry to the yeah. mainland to be slaughtered and then Brilliant. hours back with the meat. <laughs> yeah. Because because farmers could no longer slaughter on their own farm and sell to their neighbors or anything yeah. like that. So, okay, so just I, I need I need some other background like. <laughs> what was it? What's the what was the population of Haida Gwaii approximately? About about for the all the islands about mm-hmm. five thousand. Five thousand people. Yeah. And would you say because I mean was everyone were 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 a much was there a much higher proportion of the people in that population who were who were really sensitive to um to the food food security um yeah I issue think so. and. Yeah who cared about really like a strong local farming economy or did you still see tons of people who were like completely sourcing all their food from, from, you yeah. know, from what came in by ferry? Well, well, like anywhere, I think money was a big driver, like up, up there, the industry, like logging was a big thing. It was a resource-based industry. Um, that was all kind of going in decline. Mm-hmm. So people were definitely uh, shy to pay, uh, expensive prices and the, you mean for local, local farm stuff or you mean for what was coming in? Uh, just for whichever. Yeah. Just for whichever. So usually that unfortunately would mean that grocery store stuff was a bit cheaper because even farms had to bring stuff off island to to produce. So yeah, it was um, kind of complicated. But I think a lot of people moved there or grew up in a place where food, it was a food-centric kind of place, whether you were native, native Haida, mm-hmm. and uh, were really into foraging and eating like your ancestors once did, or you uh, just wanted to live kind of on the on the fringe, I guess, mm-hmm. and be a bit more extreme and, and um, just want to... Uh, it's hard to... It's a really hard thing to put into words, I find, because... Um, people that live there really wanted to live there and nowhere else and they respected that place Mm -hmm. and um, usually held a lot of strong philosophies about what it meant to live there and be responsible for that land because the natural beauty there was just outstanding and you wanted to preserve that you didn't want to um, just take that for granted and and possibly ruin it right so um yeah there were there were definitely people that would go that extra mile to support whether it be with 
with money or even just being kind of outspoken about it and writing in the local paper. Well, and let me just put it this way. Like, did Maud Island Farm have any trouble selling its produce from the market garden? Um, certain, yeah, that, no, I would say no in the end, mm-hmm. no. Um, because there were other farms on island, though. Um, this was um, the only certified organic farm. So that mm-hmm. was that was kind of an interesting thing about Mud Island Farm but there were other farms on island and there was definitely competition between the farms mm-hmm. like if another farmer would show up to the market the you would go home with a lot more produce or be right. trying to sell it wholesale to to restaurants or something like that so there still wasn't enough I guess like you could produce too much yeah I guess in a population of 5,000 that's not all that surprising Mm -hmm. um okay so all right so you you finish a a season I suppose of of learning about veggie production Mm -hmm. in the meantime you've just immersed yourself in this in this culture of of uh, self-sufficiency and food you know trying to maximize food security and you become so are there dairy cows already on the farm when you're there no no there wasn't there wasn't milk being produced commercially on the islands at all and it's also just a great way to contribute to a vegetable farm with because we were bringing amendments in from off island Mm -hmm. and it'd be cool if we just had the fertilizer there and also the composter for any you know vegetables that might have like for example, like a fungus on them or something, yeah. like a potato that you can't replant. So, um, yeah, I heard about a possibility to go and, well, it wasn't really a possibility to go work on it. I heard about this this farm that was doing something really different in the Fraser Valley and um, thought that it would be neat to go learn dairy farming from them i don't know it's really hard to like okay so so hold on so you you finished the first season you're yeah this is what you want to learn about did you leave mod island to go down to the Fraser? i Island? did ah yeah. i had it yeah. i didn't realize but you yeah. just just we'll come back to this but you ended up back up at mod then didn't you i did okay okay yeah. so so i was driving at something that wasn't true so okay so you so you you left mod island for a time yeah. then you yeah. go down to the Fraser valley uh, where there's a farm that had be started to become well known for uh, operating a raw milk dairy, yeah, uh, which is not technically legal in BC, yeah. and to to a fair degree, it was public about this, right? Like it, it certainly yeah, it was wasn't it wasn't super secretive. No, no. So tell me a little bit about about that farm and, and that experience. Oh, okay, yeah. So. Um... Yeah, I thought if if I was going to learn dairy farming, I'd want it to be as, I want to say as pure as possible, I guess. At that that point in my life, that's probably what I was thinking. Um, And also it kind of went into the food activism part of me, really, really got me stirring on the inside. So I literally just kept, I just kept emailing them until they agreed to meet with me. So, um, yeah, I left and I met with them at their house in Chilliwack. 
Did they ask if you were wearing a wire? <laughs> no, I think they could tell that I looked like some shaggy hippie, so I probably was pretty. pretty well, that's innocent. that's just how a dairy narc would dress, though, you know. <laughs> yeah, try to throw him for a loop. Yeah, I think the nose ring probably convinced them. <laughs> she 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 can't be undercover. She's got a nose ring. Okay, so yeah, you met met with them. Yeah, so I met with them, and they had, like, five young children running around this small house, and they were, like I said, there was a strong religious presence in the house, and uh, I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work, so we went to the barn to do the, the afternoon chores, which was milking, right, and just kind of observed, and um, kind of did some stuff, but I didn't know anything, like, I'd never milked an animal at that point, or even really been around cows but I freaking loved it I just thought it was so cool to be working with large animals like that to be working really hard at something that had it was passion really mm -hmm. it was like a, a decision it was uh, both intellectual and heartfelt mm -hmm. for me and so yeah I, I was pretty sold and luckily they said that I could stay <laughs> okay <laughs> so before we before we proceed about your experience there let's just kind of rapid fire get a sense of this farm okay so I'll, okay. I'll just ask a bunch of questions what were their main outputs like what were their main products that they were that they were ultimately selling um raw well that's another i was very strictly trained on that like they weren't able to sell anything because it's that co-op situation but yeah. their main output would be the raw milk the raw milk? Yeah, Any yeah, other yeah. dairy products that, that ultimately they were doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did butter mm -hmm. and yogurt and buttermilk. And I think at that point that was it. There was such a demand for the raw milk. For the milk, milk itself, yeah. yeah. And that's when you get your highest return to. So. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, which is kind of funny because usually value adding is where, where the, the higher yeah. profits are. But I could see in that case, that not in the case. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so all right, how many animals, how many, how many, how many milk cows did they have? There you? was at that point, um, I want to say about 1920. Uh, were these jerseys? Yeah, yeah, mostly. And so yeah. 20 Jersey cows? Yeah. Okay, how did the, um, I mean, in a nutshell, okay, did they have, were they like pasture-raised animals? Yes, yeah, yeah. So there was a whole um, animal husbandry kind of school that goes along with the raw milk. Like it is a entire system view, not just the raw milk. So mm -hmm. to have high quality raw milk you have to treat your animals really well raise them organically have them on live foods so that's either foraging or um a lot of people try to give sprouts or some sort of live food to keep the animal really healthy throughout the throughout the winter i want to say simple animal husbandry but you also had to know a lot about it and how did you end okay and so i, I imagine you learned a ton how did you end up back at mod island to do to raise to raise jerseys yeah, so they, <laughs> we, it dawned on me that I could do this and that this was actually a very reasonable thing to do in the Queen Charlotte's. Okay, so you, like, you really want to help improve the food security up at Maud Island and Haida Gwaii. And so you, you're, you, it's not so by, crazy. by purchasing some jerseys, yeah. going 20 hours by vehicle, 
six hours by ferry and then hiring a barge to get them over to Mod Island where you intend to start up a small yeah. version of what you were doing in yeah. yeah. So how'd it go? It went it went really well. Obviously there was various complications with being on a smaller island off a large island. Um, which made it, um, you know, kind of stressful at times. But really, there was a lot of... Oh, sorry. Oh, I have to stop you. <laughs> I just want to know about how you got the animals there. How, just where did you... Did you did you buy the animals yeah. from from this farm I you were on? I did, yeah. yeah. So I bought a trailer and I bought the cows, which I knew um, were good and healthy, right? And could do it. Okay, so they were already... Like, how old were they then when you bought them? Um, one was a bit younger. She was about three and milking and one was older. Um, she was probably about nine at the time and she was pregnant already. Um, they were both around a thousand. Okay. So you spent $2,000 on a couple milking cows (laughs) and what, 1500 bucks on a trailer? Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you hitched the, you put them on the trailer, you hitched yeah. them up to a vehicle, you drove up to Prince Rupert, yeah. you caught the ferry to Hanaguay. Yeah. Did that all go fairly smoothly? Um, kind of smoothly. I mean, I was so stressed, right? Because I was, like, cows don't travel well at all. And that's a really long car ride to have cows. So they're not really eating during that time. And they were milking, so their their bodies are really uh kind of stretched right like they're and then they're with my like babies did you have to milk them along the way i did what where did you milk them i remember milking them in uh the park in prince rupert and uh, like a taxi driver would come up be like what are you doing oh just milk my cows and yeah it was pretty funky i can't i can't believe this like i can't believe you took that on yeah, yeah, I think, I don't, yeah, I don't know, I think I mean I had something to prove, but I also just really wanted to be part of it, mm-hmm. right, and I knew what it could mean for the community, and it also gave me a way to really contribute to, because no one else was doing this up there for sure. Yeah, so I remember a lady took us in, and we spent, like, waiting for the barge, we spent a night at this at this house where the cows could hang out overnight. So we just like waited for the barge and it's like, ah, we have like pictures of us with the cows outside the tourist information center in Queen Charlotte village. And yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was like getting to the Island was an amazing feeling for sure. Cause it felt like, Oh my gosh, we're really going to do this. So awesome. very quickly, like how how did you lay out the share? Like how did you how did you structure it? Uh, I assume there was an upfront purchase of a share. Yeah. Like yeah, like, there was. Um, yeah, and it was for it depended on the milk the amount of milk that you're anticipating and getting. So if you wanted a full share, it was such amount. I think I want to say like a hundred and fifty bucks. Can't, I can't really remember. And then and then that um, reserved your... Your right your to purchase right. each yeah. month. Yeah, exactly. And then what... So what did it cost each month? Um, if you got two liters, it was... Per, per week? Per... Yeah. Yeah, per week. Some people got that. Some people just got a liter. And I it was all in like glass bottles and mm-hmm. stuff too. So I think people really like that. 
Hope they did, because it was heavy. <laughs> um, it was $12 for two liters. And so so pricey liters. by Southern population standards, but I'm sure up there reasonable for what you were offering. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, no one else was doing it, so I tried to make it so that it could sustain itself, right? Because I was planning on doing it for a long time at the time, and... Um, it was hard to to really put a price on it because so many things varied. For example, like I ordered Canadian organic grain, and getting that to the like the amount of freight that they tried right? to yeah. charge me. Like I remember like calling them, being like, "I can't like you just charged me more for the freight than the product cost mm-hmm. me. Like this isn't gonna work." And then um, the amount for hay and stuff was just. So and expensive. I mean, I wanted to ask you, like, how how closely could you stick to what you'd been taught in terms of care and husbandry feeding? In like what you learned in the Fraser Valley, I mean, like, yeah. did they have fresh pasture or was this? Yeah, yeah. They, did. they had they had some. That was something that we were working on for sure. Um, but there were cows on island, right? So it like the the land can support cows. You just have to know what is in the the forage that they're getting and mm-hmm. how to supplement that so that they're getting all their all their minerals and the right proteins and stuff so um yeah i was able i was pretty i pretty structured in that i i didn't want to take any risks on the health of the cow because that just wasn't good for the people that were into it i said i was doing one thing for all these people and I really wanted to stick to that. Mm-hmm. So I was I was able to, but it was expensive. Oh, I bet. Expensive. And I think they understood that, but they still, you know, wanted it. And you could really taste it too, right? Like the milk itself tasted delicious. So that kind of sold it itself, not to mention that it was raised in such a neat way. And we had like share members come out to the farm and, you know, milk the cow for the first time and, mm-hmm. and see how they were doing it. And yeah, it was pretty neat. Wow. So how long how long did you stay up there doing that? That lasted that was about a year. And in the summer it was much easier than the winter, for sure. And then um yeah, it was just there was lots of stuff going on with the farm and it was just like they were just too big and it was just too much for the farm all at once. And so I figured that I needed two cows to make it worthwhile for me to be there um, to make a profit off it, um, well, a living off of it. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, it just kind of got too too complicated, especially with the storms in the winter and having to rebreed the cows because you need to keep them in milk production and mm-hmm. they're not like goats. Like you have to rebreed them. Um so as wonderful as it was, it was just kind of straining people too much. So I went on to the bigger island. With the cows? With the cows, yeah. Yeah. And then um, continued to do it there for a little bit. And then the idea dawned on me that it would be really neat to start expanding my product line. Because I started to dabble in cheese making at home. And so I was like, okay, well, I got to learn how to make cheese properly now too. 
because I wanted something that could bring income. If the cows were dry, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if something happened, um, also start creating product that was not being created on the islands. Mm-hmm. And it was really, it's really neat. Cheese making is really cool. So that's where you started cheese making, pretty much. I guess so, yeah. I started cheese making in my kitchen, I guess, from from the raw milk for my cows. Just learning from a book? Yeah, learning from a book, and I wouldn't say really doing it that well. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, did lots of mozzarella and stuff like that, but yeah that's and then that's why i knew that cheese making was more than just reading it in a book mm-hmm. and that's why i wanted so how long you moved around a little bit on the main island but how long how much longer did you stay up there with these cows running this uh this this um milkshare? yeah i think oh like just over a year i want to say and so my plan though was to take um a break, like let all the share members know that this is what I was doing. Mm. Um, I was going to go pursue this cheese making internship that I had discovered. Back, da- back down south back in down the province. South. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, I just kind of lined things up and yeah, let people know that that's what was, what I was going to do. And everyone was really supportive because who doesn't want awesome cheese added to their, to their, food and so um, the idea was to, to return back to Haida Gwaii and just continue on but with but things went in a different direction yes they did so that concludes the first part of Lisa's story a lot's changed since then Lisa went on to apprentice with a couple of cheeseries in southern BC she decided to sell her dairy to another farmer in the Queen Charlotte's she attended culinary school and now she lives in the Okanagan Valley making cheese at a cheesery and also as a chef I may share this part of her story on the podcast, I may not. It depends what it sounds like. I still haven't given it a full listen since we recorded back in December. But I hope you enjoyed what you heard. That's it. And hey, if you like this podcast, please tell your like-minded friends about it. And share the hell out of it on the Facebook. I'd really appreciate it. Bye for now. spring water and peaches will nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. Because why would we live in a place that don't want us? A place that is trying to bleed us dry. We could be happy with life in the country With salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands I've been doing a lot of thinking Some real soul searching And here's my final resolve I don't need a big old house or some fancy car To keep my love going strong So we'll run right out into the